Testing one, two, one, two. What's up, friends? I recently got back from Costa Rica where I recorded this conversation with Dr. Chris Ryan. We went down to Rhythmia, which is the first medically licensed plant medicine treatment center in the world. It's a really nice spot, complete with colonics, massages, breath work, and ayahuasca. Uh, Super cool spot. Uh, If you're interested to learn more about that place, you can go back to episode 39 with Dr. Jeff McNary. We talk all about ayahuasca and what they're doing down there. Super cool. Right now, I'm down in L.A., living out of a suitcase, staying at friends' houses. It's been a blast. That saying, the less you know, or sorry, not the less you know, the less you have, the more you live, is so true. I've, I've just been living out of a suitcase, and I've been having such a good time. I'm going to be down here for the summer, maybe longer, don't tell anyone, uh, to be recording podcasts, and I'm pitching a show. I hate talking about things that I'm going to do, because you never know if they're actually going to come to fruition, but I feel comfortable telling you all about this. So I'm pitching a show called Spotlight Blue, and the premise is people who have a unique relationship with water and using water as this lens to look at different social and environmental issues. So everything from cold plunges being used to treat depression to larger social issues and how water intersects with it. So I'm excited about that. I'm definitely not right now following uh, Derek Sivers' rules. If you're looking, if you want to f- see a good TED talk, check out Derek Sivers. He he basically explains the science behind why you shouldn't tell people your goals because by me telling you this goal right now, I feel closer than I really am to achieving it. <laughs> uh, but fuck it. Um. Anyway, i got some good episodes coming soon. Got one with Amy Baldwin. We did a round two, the sex educator and relationship coach. Still to this day, uh, Amy's episode is the most popular that I've ever done. And I've got another one with two twins who paddled from Alaska to Mexico. They broke a world record. Super funny kids. Uh, we got those two coming out. And a big thank you to everyone who's been supporting this show, giving it ratings on iTunes, donating to it through, through Patreon, and supporting it through the Amazon affiliate program. I really appreciate it. Uh, for those of you who don't know, if you give just a few bucks a month to support this show, you get entered into a monthly raffle where I give away gear from my surf sponsors, including Patagonia Provisions, Sector 9 Skateboards, RPM Fitness. So if you donate 10 or 20 bucks, you could have a skateboard being shipped to your door, some food, or a fitness kit. And also the Amazon affiliate program is super cool. You can go to my website, kyle.surf, and there's a a link to Amazon, and then you bookmark that link, so then when you go and buy shit on Amazon, um, it, it automatically will, anything you buy will automatically give me five to eight percent of it at no cost to you. Um, which is, which is super cool. And it's an easy way to support the podcast if you don't have any extra dough. Anyway, kyle.surf not kyle.surf.com i thought i was being so clever when i got kyle.surf but everyone always types in kyle.surf.com it's simple
My guest today is Dr. Chris Ryan. Christopher's work has been featured just about everywhere, including MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, NPR, The New York Times, The Times of London, Playboy, The Washington Post, Time, Newsweek, The Atlantic, and Outside Magazine. He was a featured speaker at TED in Long Beach, California, and is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships. The book's been translated into 15 languages, and I highly recommend it. It's a really enjoyable read, and he's got some dangerous ideas in there. Love those people with dangerous ideas. Chris's podcast, Tangentially Speaking, reaches hundreds of thousands of people every week. I highly recommend checking it out. Um, I was on the show. I'm episode 247 of the podcast, and, and I was really happy with uh, with the conversation that we had there. The conversations that I have with Chris generally result with me leaving feeling like my brain got a firmware upgrade. Uh uh, you know, he he's just a, most importantly, he's fucking funny. I laugh a lot when I'm around him. And he's wise and unpretentious. And I like the dude. I'm going to link to Chris's TED Talk, to his book, to his podcast, and to the short film that we reference in this show, Nine and a Half Lives, on my website, kyle.surf. All right. Hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Chris Ryan. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles. And thumbs up. Thumbs up. Are, are we on? Is this? Are we? No, let's get it going right now. Oh, okay. We're we're recording. All right. All right. How's your stomach feeling? It, if uh, vacated, <laughs> like Vacaville. <laughs> Vacaville. Fuck, that um, was tough. Yeah, was it? Was well, you know, it felt like for me was. Um, I was resisting at first. It felt like like being held down, like resisting arrest, resisting arrest. And then all of a sudden, you just go limp and give in. There's a certain yeah. point. Anytime just, something's up my ass, I just go limp and give in. Yeah, I think that's Dr. Chris Ryan and I just got colonics <laughs> together. That's right. We should explain that, shouldn't we? Yeah, we just got colonics. Well, not precisely together, but we were in adjoining rooms. I think we were thinking about doing the podcast while getting colonics. Yeah. I still think that would have been fun. The sound effects might have been a little disturbing. Maybe people would prefer clipping yeah. audio to... Tell me the, about the prehistory of human sexuality. <laughs> so that was your first. It was my second. I found it surprisingly easy. I took my phone in there and just answered emails and, you know, read the latest on the Trumpocalypse and, and just let it flow. Yeah, I was doing deep breathing. It was a little more tough for me. Huh. But it might be because because I've uh, dealt with stomach issues for a while. What kind of stomach issues? Well, I, I think I mentioned the other day I ruptured my appendix oh, a number of right. years ago, right. and then I've yeah. dealt with stomach issues ever since. But it's kind of gotten... I feel like I've made it through the weeds. Right. Uh, but I still have bad gas And sometimes. you must have... Yeah, we all have bad gas, man. It's supposed to be bad. That's the beauty of it. You know that joke? No. Why do farts stink? 
Why? So deaf people can enjoy them too? Ah, <laughs> everyone lacks their own brand. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, How's your writing going these days? Oh, it's going to be one of those podcasts, huh? How are you feeling about it these days? Uh, I'm feeling uh, uh, torn, you know, because I, I'm I'm sort of the project that needs to be finished uh, is massive and intimidating and... Uh, you know, I'm sort of ready to move on to other projects, but it does need to be finished. So I'm feeling uh, a sense of more of a sense of responsibility than joy at this point. But hopefully and that's not in the writing. Yeah, you made T-shirts already. I've sold so many T-shirts like I got to put out a damn book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are there aspects of your writing that you're working on most right now? As far as process, process. and all that? Uh, you know, I, I one of the reasons I'm looking forward to moving uh, to the next project is that I think either now or maybe after the next book, I haven't decided what the next book is going to be. Um, but I feel like I have maybe one more big idea book in me. And then, and that may, like I say, it may be the next book or it may be down the road a little bit, but but I really want to shift to a different kind of writing. So I want to, um, instead of these big idea books, I want to um, move into more, maybe something uh, fiction related. I, like I've thought for a long time about uh, trying to write a novel that's set in prehistory, you know, because I know. Yeah, you, yeah, you can. Uh, I sort of have the world down, yeah. you know. Um, and so it's really just a question of uh, compelling story. And I think that would be really enjoyable uh, for me to write because I love being in that place mentally. I love thinking about how people were living and what they were seeing and smelling and how they were experiencing their daily lives and their relationships and all that. I, I find a lot of pleasure in that. So while the act of writing itself doesn't necessarily um, uh, thrill me, uh, writing about something that's where I'm just sort of imagining and pulling shit out of my ass as it were right uh would probably be more fun and then i also want to get into writing um stuff that's more sort of aligned with what i do on the one part of my podcast where i tell stories and our mutual friend neil strauss uh, i was hanging out with him recently and uh you know i was sort of griping about the responsibility of getting this book done and you know and he was like, man, you should just forget it. You should just write your sexual memoirs, you know? And at first I thought he was just fucking with me, but we talked about it more and he was like, look, you've already told me like, you know, seven or eight stories that are hilarious and bizarre and totally, you know, like no one but you could possibly have told that story, you know? And I thought about it and he's right. And it's barely scratched the surface. So I think that would be an interesting thing to write because it would you know the writing of course would be itself would be interesting um but i think for me personally it would also be interesting because there would be a, a level of self-revelation 
you know, I preach shamelessness a lot. So, you know, it would be kind of like, okay, let's see what you got. You know, what are you willing to share? Right. And those would be the good stories too, like internal conflicts. Exactly. It wouldn't be a story. It wouldn't be a series of like, Hey, look how much I get laid stories. It's not that kind of thing. It, it's more like my personal journey, uh, you know, from dorky, very awkward, uncomfortable teenager to whatever I am now. Uh, you know, there've been some interesting moments along that journey. And, and I have been, you know, throughout my life, I've been starting when I was like 11, when my, uh, babysitter basically seduced me. Um, that was my first sexual experience, I believe with a human, um, <laughs> talk, if, if anyone uh, about didn't, didn't, didn't get that one, type in nine and a half lives with Dr. That's, Chris Ryan on that's YouTube. Right. You'll laugh your ass off. Uh, yeah. You know, that film was in a film festival recently, the Santa Monica film no. festival. I've got the guy sent me, the guy who did it sent me a, a poster from the film. So I've got it up over my bed. So the cat comes and she looks at me with love, love. and gratitude. <laughs> so that would be in the book. Cats have orgasms. Yeah, blood mixes with semen. Yeah. Are there any um, any other moments uh, that stand out to you right now in terms of big sexual revelations along your path? Oh, yeah, a lot of them. And see, that's why it would be an interesting book to write because it's, cause it's, it's, you know, I... A long time ago, my best buddy, Mike, he and I, you know, from the time we were 15, we've been, you know, like brothers. Uh, and Mike's so different from me. You know, the joke would be like I was Kirk, he was Spock. You know, he studied engineering at Cornell. I was studying literature up the road at Hobart. You know, he's like straight, no drugs kind of guy. I'm tripping my face off all the time. He, you know, got his master's at Cornell, then he got a job and he like rose up and met a wonderful woman, settled down, kids, great, you know, stability, all this kind of stuff. Um, his parents were war refugees. And so he was sort of first generation immigrant, super disciplined dude, you know, speaks five languages perfectly, great musician, just like, you know, that kind of guy. Whereas I'm like all over the place, you know, whatever, undisciplined, floating around, banging off stuff. And, but we appreciate each other. We love each other and respect the path that the other's taken, you know. And, uh, but a long time ago, I remember I went to visit him. He was living in Paris and I had been in Asia. This is after I'd been to Alaska a few times, traveled around Mexico. Uh, then I'd been in Asia for a year or two and we were hanging out in Paris and he said to me, uh, you know, I, I finally figured you out. I said, what, uh, what are you talking about? He said, you're the anti-monk. So what do you mean? He said, well, monks seek enlightenment by renouncing the temptations of life. You're seeking enlightenment by immersing yourself in the temptations. So you're doing the drugs you're doing the sex you're doing the travel you're doing you like you're, you're doing you're doing yeah rather than what a monk does is stops doing in order to find that piece and you know uh I know had you ever thought about it that way before I, no i hadn't i mean i'd certainly thought about like hey you know life is short i want to live you know i want to experience i want to be 
if I live to be an old man, I want to be an old man with some good stories. Uh, I certainly thought about that, but I never thought of it in terms of uh, like a spiritual discipline, which is the wrong word for it, but uh, spiritual lack of discipline. Yeah, exactly. An intentional lack of intention. Um, so you're out there. Yeah. He tells you this. So, yeah. So that I mean that uh, I, I think that's sort of an organizing principle in retrospect. And as far as sexuality goes, you know, that's been along with drugs, along with travel, along with literature and, you know, relationships, friendships. And uh, but sex has certainly been uh, a source of. Uh, you know, I don't want to say enlightenment, but I've learned a learning. Lot. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned a lot from sex. So you asked about particular moments. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing with the cat was amazing. <laughs> consult the consult the video. It's really it's something else. Uh, you know, my babysitter, that, that was amazing. This, you know, 17 year old girl sort of leading me into, you know, initiating me into this thing. I was 11. You know, I, I had a vague sense of what was going on. And I don't want to uh, present myself as a victim. I certainly didn't feel like a victim, although I know that culturally that would be the definition now. But I felt honored. I felt like, wow, she thinks it reminded me of like my dad gave me a book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, when I was like 12 or 13. And I started reading it and I was like, I have no idea what this book is about, but I'm going to read it because my dad thinks I can. And I read the whole thing and I still had a vague, oh, at best, a vague sense of what was going on. But I just felt like it's so cool that somebody thinks I can understand this, even if I can't. Right. That's my secret. But at least they think I can, you know, and so someday I will. I felt that same way with her. And um, yeah. So I, how did she approach you? Um, you know, we we hung out a lot. She was babysitting me and my sister. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think there was just a uh, there was an energy. I think she sensed that I was curious and I was attracted to her. And it was a very sort of nascent energy in me. And I think she was intrigued. And I remember she had a boyfriend whose name was Chris. And, um, I remember sort of the thing that stands out in my mind when I, when it went from like, mm, something is happening here maybe to yes, definitely something was, I was standing behind her. She was sitting on a sofa watching TV and I came from the kitchen or something. I was standing behind her and she had a, like a blouse and I was looking down her blouse at her breasts. Right. And she sort of turned and caught me and she said, uh, you know, Chris likes to touch them, her boyfriend. And at the time I thought, okay, so she knows what I'm thinking. She's telling me it's cool if I want to. And I definitely want to, but why do I want to? I was so, so curious. Like, why, why do I want to touch her there? Why? Why? And I really do, but why? And and what am I going to do when I touch her? What's you know? It's just like so. Part of it, probably a, a small part of it, maybe ten or fifteen percent of it, was actual sexual feeling. The rest, eighty-five percent, was just fascination. Like, why is my brain doing this? Why? What's happening in me? So uh, for me, a lot of sexuality has been fascinating because you know it's it's one of these things where 
you look at it from one angle, it's just ridiculous. You look at it from another angle, it's everything, you know, and or, or one moment it like consumes your entire mind. And then you come and a minute later, you're like, oh, well, that's kind of <laughs> gross. What am I, what am I going to do? Right. You know, what's for dinner? Right. And it's such a weird way to live. It you know? is. But it seems like from a very young age, you had, um, it takes a certain amount of self-reflection to notice your mind doing that, right? Because yeah. there is, yeah. I think that the, the tightrope that you've been able to walk between um, just being an, uh, uh, kind of junkie for adventure, right? Which I think a lot of people are or like going on to the next experience without actually learning anything from the past experience is right. something that I see a lot of people do. Right. And then there are a lot of people who, you know, like the monk side of things where you just don't want to indulge in those experiences. Yeah. Um, well, you're seeing that now a little bit in me. Like I, I love extreme experience, but I'm also very like, uh, I want to think it through and I want to be sure it's the right time and I'm in the right place. And, you know, I, I remember having a, a, an amazing day with Dan Savage, you know, the sex advice columnist who's become a friend of mine. We're in New York. We're at this uh, Brooklyn book festival. We did this incredible event in this big church and hundreds of people there. And, and then we went out to dinner and, and, um, with Carsey Blanton, who, uh, sings the theme song on my podcast. She's an amazing, wonderful musician and songwriter. And, uh, then we went to the West village and went to a bear bar with, uh, Andrew Sullivan, who's a good friend of Andrew's and Chris Bodiner is an amazing journalist. And, uh, so it's just like this incredible day. And then at the end of this day, Dan and I are back at the hotel. We're up on the roof looking out across the East River at you know the lights in New Jersey. And uh, and I said to him, you know, like, my God, that what a day, you know, incredible. And like and he's like, yeah. And then tomorrow I'm flying to D.C. and, you know, doing this and then I'm flying to, and then I'm doing that. And I said to him, like, today was a normal day for you, wasn't it? And he's like, yeah, it's pretty. And I was like, yeah, you know, don't you. Because my feeling was like I had had a series of those, like five or six days that were just really intense. And I was like, it, it was as if we had eaten in a five-star restaurant every meal, every day. And it's like, don't you ever want to just like have some rice and beans and digest that and think about what you ate? You know, like I feel that way about experience. Like I've traveled a lot of it, but I'm not one of these people who's like, okay, a month in India, I'm going to see the whole country. I'm much more likely like a month in India, I'm going to go to this little village and sit there. Yeah, right. For three weeks. I found yeah. that with a lot of uh, professional athletes that I've had on the podcast, their normal is so much different than other people's. Right. And that's yeah. why it's kind of a weird question. People are like, how do you surf those waves? Right. Yeah. But a lot of them just grew up doing that. And right. a normal day for them is to go out, maybe go hunt a pig in the morning, go surf big waves in the <laughs> afternoon, call it a day and do it the next day. Yeah. Right. So it's, I think that a lot of it has to do with the tempo that we develop early on right. and what suits us yeah and different tempos suit different people yeah humans are amazingly adept at at normalizing extreme experience yeah you know we were yeah we were talking about just uh cold plunges the, the other day about uh, how yeah. how uh much it was um normalized for people to jump in cold water all throughout history right yeah. there was it's very rare that we would use warm water right. or cold a lot right. whereas now 
the only people you really see being comfortable in cold water many times are little kids because they mm. haven't been told that it's super uncomfortable yet. Yeah. I'll go surf all the time and I'll, I'll see some kid and it'll be January in Santa Cruz. I'm in a 4-3 freezing my ass off and I'll see a kid in trunks. He's maybe like seven years old and no one's told him that it's cold as shit and he needs to go in. Yeah. Yeah, we learn, we learn to feel pain in a lot of ways. Uh, we learn disgust. Disgust is interesting. You look at babies, they, they are disgusted by almost nothing. And they're afraid of almost nothing. Interestingly, snakes is one of the things that babies throughout the world are terrified of on site without any learning. Really? Yeah. Do and, we have any also, idea why that is? Well, probably because it goes right back to the you know, early ape. You know, we share it because baby chimps and baby bonobos also will recoil from an image of a snake. Right. So. When when did you begin um, your fascination with prehistory of um, humans? Well, you know, all this stuff kind of fits together in, in a way. Um, a lot of my life is, at this point, I see it as this cyclical thing. I didn't realize it until recently, but... My first great intellectual passion was Native American cultures. So from the time I was probably nine until, well, th in, well into high school, I was obsessed with American Indian cultures. I mean, I, I, everything I read was about American Indians. Um, I, you know, made my own moccasins. I had a wigwam in the backyard. I sent away to the Lakota reservation in North Dakota and got these, um, tapes where I was trying to learn, uh, Lakota language. Wow. I was like totally into it. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but, uh, into it to the point where, um, if my parents hadn't been so cool, I would have definitely been under psychiatric care. Because, I, I mean, I came home from school, took off my... First thing I did, went up to my room, took off my clothes, put on a loincloth, which I made out of... From a bath towel and a belt. Wait, how old are you here? From the time I was eight till 14 or 15. Whoa. Yeah, when we moved to Connecticut. <laughs> and I would... And I was, like, naked except for this loincloth. That I would wear around the house all the time. I remember one time my parents were having a bridge party and I was upstairs reading. And when I read, I would just get into the zone. You know, I was like totally tripped out all the time. And um, I went downstairs to get something from the kitchen and I walked through the party and I just heard all conversations stop. You know, I must have been 13 or something. <laughs> this like naked, redheaded kid walking through with a purple bath towel loincloth on. Uh, but, you know, to their credit, my parents were just like, I, I mean, my mom's more of a conventional, like, mm, I don't know. But my dad was just like, fuck yeah, that kid, you know, he's learning, he's reading, he's he digs it. And, and he was just like, Passion is a good thing, whatever. You're passionate about that, that's great. And he would always bring me books and, you know. Was he, it a solo it. endeavor as well? No, it wasn't like a group of friends that were getting no, into it. it was solo. I mean, at one point, I became close friends with a guy named Dave who was half Apache and half Italian. And we hung out a lot. I mean, he wasn't raised. His mother was Apache. Um, and his father was like... Now, looking back on it, I think his father was like a mafia guy. His father had one eye, one glass eye, and he was a jet pilot. 
This is in Western Pennsylvania. He owned a flight school in this little town I lived in. I know you were allowed to do that. You're not. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, can you, <laughs> you ever try and jet? close your eye and see how far your hand away no is from your face? Perception. You can't tell. You don't want a fucking jet pilot with no depth perception. What's up? And they're and they're like living. Uh, yeah, they had a lot of money that you know was kind of inexplicable, and and his mother was super hot, and his father was not. You know, and I, so looking back is like. Yeah, there was something going on. They had a lot of guns in the house. Anyway, my buddy Dave um, was a trapper. And so he ran a trap line uh, every morning before school. He'd show up at school with like blood splatters all over his jeans and shit from no, clubbing raccoons. No one fuck with Dave. <laughs> Dave was a tough motherfucker, I'll tell you. Uh, yeah, Dave. So you got, so fa- ha- you became fascinated it. with Native Americans early yeah. on. Yeah. That culture. Right. Just got into it for whatever reason. So I felt like deeply, uh, that there was, I was in the wrong place in time. Like this, you know, and again, I don't mean to minimize other people's experience or trivialize anything, but I felt like a transgender kind of thing, you know, where someone's like, I'm in the wrong body. You know, I just know it. I felt that way. Like I'm not a fucking white guy living in Western PA in the seventies. Like this, some, something's wrong here. You know, I'm an Iroquois in 1500, you know, or, or whatever. Um, so as much as I could, I connected with this other way of living because I felt that the way that I was in was wrong. It was fucked up. It was false. It, you know, and I think a lot of kids feel that coming up. And I think, you know, there's a lot of depression and anxiety and, and anguish in uh, adolescence. And I think one of the reasons is that they're, as their consciousness is developing, they're sort of looking out you know, into the world. And they're like, are you kidding me? This is what I've got to deal with. Like, what the fuck is this? You know? And, and because they've got some innate authenticity, they're very sensitive to the bullshit. I mean, you know, what's the most famous beloved book of adolescence, you know, in the last 50 years is Catcher in the Rye. And what's it about? It's about fake people in authenticity. You know, Holden Caulfield. I don't know if you've ever yeah, read yeah. it, but you know that's what that's his big bugaboo. It's like fake people, fake bullshit. It's all lies, you know. So I think, you know, maybe this is just the way I process that sort of uh, conventional sense of disappointment. But were there any uh, moments early on that you saw that fakeness in society? That kind of like just looking, why the hell do people do this? Interesting question. I I don't know if anything jumps out at me because as I said, in my own family, I was really lucky that my parents were really cool and and very authentic. Your dad was a writer, right? He was a writer, a teacher, you know, he sort of, um, his, his professional arc moved through uh, different things and and he and because he was very good at what he was doing he kept getting promoted and we moved and so maybe that's another part of it I moved like 20 times before I got out of high school right you got to see a lot of different environments early on maybe. and I was pretty isolated uh, for a lot of that because I was always the new kid you know and so I had to like develop ways to deal with that R- rolling around the schoolyard in a loincloth too yeah. probably didn't help <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> running through the soccer field. 
<laughs> and I'll tell you what, anytime we played Cowboys and Indians, I was a fucking Indian. I would drop out of trees onto people and, you know, like, like hiding, forget about it. You'd never find me. I was really good at that stealth kind of shit. I am the shadow. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. It'd be hard to, I'd have to think about that if there are specific examples of, of, you know, that yeah, kind of thing. Moments of seeing the seeing glitches in the matrix. Yeah. But I definitely had a very strong sense that it was a matrix to the extent that, you know, obviously this would be pre matrix thinking, but, um, yeah, there, there was a, a strong feeling that, uh, this, reality that you're expecting me to swallow is isn't right it isn't healthy and I had a very another weird thing I had I mean I was very sort of um you know I said earlier I was like trippy kind of like I was um very interested in altered states you know I had psychic experiences I had you know premonitions and things from an early age so I definitely had a sense that like Ooh, this isn't there's more there's than, more to life than this yeah than what's on the surface here um and I had a you know my earliest memory probably is the memory of a memory if that makes sense hmm. in other words I remember remembering that where I came from before I was born was a good place. And I had a sense as a early adolescent that I, you know, you talk about being self-reflective for some reason, I was always like on that meta level where I was watching myself grow up and watching myself think and watching myself learn and make mistakes and all. That. And there was this sense that like, I had a very articulated sense that where I came from before I was born was a good place, nothing to be afraid of. And yet I knew that as my thinking became more verbal, I could feel like the way my brain worked changing from images and feelings and just quick flow to a more linear verbal inner voice speaking kind of brain. And I knew somehow that as that progression happened I'd start to lose this very comforting sense that non-life whether it's before or after was a good place and nothing to be afraid of and I knew that as I got older the fear of dying would start to increase because I was going to lose that primary memory of what it was like to not be alive and so I made a point to remember that I did remember it once. And so now at this point, I'm 55. I don't remember what that felt like, but I remember like I set down a marker to myself. I wrote a note to myself like you knew once that you didn't need to worry about this. And I know you you don't know it anymore, but here's the note. You know, it's like a note I've carried in my pocket ever since. Oh, it's like memento. You ever see that movie? Yeah, yeah, like the tattoo to remember where you were yesterday. It's it's like that, yeah. I think that uh, a lot of people have similar experiences to that, and then as they move on, they get lost. I think especially smart people who I've um, interacted with, a lot of, like, so when I was 
you know, at the peak of my career when I was like 18, I was winning a number of different environmental awards and, uh, there were different for early films that I did. And there were a bunch the of peak of your career. Of my, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a lovely ride downhill from there. Uh, but I was surrounded with, by a number of other young, uh, activists that were doing really good work at the time. And I found that for most of, of them moving from getting a ton of praise ton of, like just being on at an early age and kind of seeing the bullshit and acting on it early on um to then having to cope with young like adult life and moving through that process um it becomes very difficult for a lot of people who feel that there's something up and there's a point in their life when I don't know if a stagnation occurs or just a difficult time occurs where it's not all just like progress and self-reflection. Did you feel like there was a time after um, the, you know, the Native American uh, passion to then growing up exiting high school that there was that kind of like stagnation and like, holy shit, what do I do now? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I went to three different high schools, so... A lot of my high school time was uh, spent just dealing with social friends and girlfriends. And, you know, also I was horny as fuck. So sex was a big issue and I was ugly. I had zits and braces. And so getting laid was a major challenge. And I wasn't, you know, cool surfer dude like you or football guy or musician like my buddy you know I was, I was like yeah I'm kind of smart and dorky like no, 15 year old girls aren't digging that uh so yeah I thought I thought a lot about that um but you know there was a sense of stagnation I wasn't a particularly good student in high school I was lucky that I've always had teachers who loved me and and took care of me I think part of it is because they sympathized with me being the new kid and also because my parents always treated me like your parents, I'm sure they treated me like a person. And so when I met a teacher, I talked to them like a person and I'd ask them questions. And, you know, if they were being authentic with me, I was being authentic with them. And so they love that, you know, a good teacher loves a kid like that. Uh, so I was really lucky in that respect. Um, but I wasn't a particularly good student in high school. I got, you know, average grades. I got pretty good SATs. And uh, when I was filling out my applications, my girlfriend, my first girlfriend had just dumped me. And I was going through this incredible, you know, morose self-flagellation kind of like, you know, oh, my life is over. You know, I'll never love again. You know, <laughs> wearing sunglasses at night and shit. <laughs> and uh, it's really bad. What? It was really bad. Um, yeah, I took it pretty hard. And uh, <laughs> oh, dude, I was I was so deep, so deep. Uh, anyway, so uh, you know, and that I'll write about that in this book. I, the more I talk about this, the more I'm excited to write that book because uh, that's the only time I've ever. I mean, I, she broke my heart. Right. Like just shattered it. And that was it. Like I've never felt it again. I've never felt I mean, I've, I've obviously felt rejection. I felt whatever, but I've never pursued a woman. I've never fought for a relationship like I that was it. Like, no, someone doesn't want to be with me. That's fine. That's just fine. You know, good luck to you. And, you know, 
And that was the lesson from that one. Yeah, I mean, because the way it worked out. I mean, it was so bad. So I, what happened was she and I had been together two and a half years. And she went to, she was a year older than me, so she went to college. So it's my senior year. She's off at of college. She hooks up with some other guy. And then she comes home to visit. And I'm all, like, begging her to be with me. And then she'd like, oh, and she'd still love me, so she'd be with me. And then she'd tell me about the guy, and it would drive me crazy. And then, you know, and everyone at school knew. And I think it actually was before. It was, it was my junior year. The, toward the end of my junior year, she was already like, yeah, okay, this is kind of, I'm going away, you know. Um, and I, I mean, like I called her mother and tried to convince her mother to talk to her on oh, my shit. behalf and shit. You know? It's like that bad. L- laying in bed with sunglasses on. <laughs> talk to me, <laughs> please. I love you. Oh my God. So it was so you bad. You can't just walk out of a driving movie theater. <laughs> That's right. You'll see. No one will ever love one you. One day like I'll you. be a famous author. <laughs> Uh, oh shit so what happened so so the deal was my parents had were moving that summer to upstate new york to this little town called casanovia uh and this all happened in fairfield connecticut right and so fairfield connecticut the school i went to was like a thousand or two thousand students i think like 500 in each class massive super high level, you know, academics and, and really great. Uh, anyway, so they were moving and the deal was I was going to live with my buddy and his parents and finish out my senior year with my friends. So I didn't have to disrupt the whole thing again. Right. Um, but then after a couple months at my buddy's house into senior year, you know, around Christmas or something, I was like, yeah, fuck it. You know, Sue's gone. And I don't care. And, you know, it was kind of humiliating. Everyone knew I'd had my sorry ass dumped and I was so morose about it. So I decided to join my parents and finish my senior year upstate New York. So I fly up there, I drive up there and enroll in this little high school in this tiny little town with like 50 people in the class. And suddenly, I mean, I just didn't give a shit about anything. So I was already accepted into college you know, I get to the school and like they didn't offer AP level classes. So I had already done like everything they had to offer. So basically they just sort of put me in these classes and um, and I just didn't give a fuck. And I for the first time in my life, I, I experienced the incredible power of not giving a fuck. And the first thing that happened was I got into this dispute with a teacher. I won't go into all the details, but. Basically, he wanted me to pay attention and I wanted to read a novel. And I was like, I'll take the exam. Just let me read the novel. I'm not bothering anybody. And he, you know, got into this power struggle and then he started crying and it turned into this big fucking mess. And this is my first day of school in the new school. And so that little performance got me suspended, but it also got me the attention of this incredibly hot Cuban girl named Alicia who decided I was the one. And so suddenly I was hooking up with Alicia that nobody, everybody was gunning for Alicia, but nobody had ever bagged her. And I'm like this new guy. I'm with Alicia who was worlds hotter than this woman who broke my heart. Right. So, I mean, you know, without going into all the details, suddenly I was like, the biggest mistake of my life would have been to convince Sue to stay with me. 
Because here I am, a month later, I'm in a world I couldn't have imagined in every respect. And it's so much better. So the lesson I learned was, you never know. When something's taken away, just let it go, you know? Because what that does is freeze your hand to pick up something better, you know? Right, well... I think also that there's a much there's a big difference between trying to get a girl to like you and like putting in all this hard work and you're stressing you're thinking about what she's thinking about how what she thinks about you and then maybe you do get laid but it was this super stressful experience all the way through whereas <laughs> exactly. it sounded like a whole a whole another aspect yeah. to that enlightening moment was that it was enjoyable the process was enjoyable Exactly and and the other thing is, even if you succeed in, you know, making that sale, you don't know that she likes you. You don't know that she really wants to be with you because you pushed her into making this, you know, acquiescing to what you want. Right. As opposed to just chilling out and, oh, she wants it. Great. She, I want it too. Then it works. So I've... So this whole sort of romantic model of the persistent male and the idea that, you know, you play these games and trick women into this and that I checked out of that at the very beginning of my romantic career. And was it from that experience on that you developed that skill, that skill, the subtle art of not giving a fuck? Um, I, I think, yeah, I, I think probably, uh, maybe, I mean, it came earlier too. Like when I was the new kid, I definitely, encased myself in a, in a you know, pro- protective barrier of not giving a fuck, you know, like, cause when you move to a new school, you know how it is in high school, it's socially, it's pretty brutal. And if you start trying to appease people and Hey guys, can I hang out with you? And you're opening yourself up to all sorts of brutality. Whereas if you're just like, Hey, I'm totally comfortable eating lunch by myself. You know, you ever see the family guy episode where Stewie goes to high school uh-huh. and, uh, he's turns into the cool kid and, I'm, and he's like, yeah, like just ditch class. No big deal. And it's like, that's so cool. Stewie's he's like, no, it's lame. Everything's lame. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Can I be you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And isn't it funny? Like, you know, how deeply we want to impress eight year olds, you know, at that stage of our lives or 12 year olds or. You know, and then we look back and like, Jesus, you know, you wanted to impress fucking kids. My mom, my mom always uh, reminds me of a story when I was, I think, four years old and we were driving by Galt School Elementary in school. And I looked out over the window and I saw all these six and seven year olds going to kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And I looked around like, Mom, how old do you need to be to go to Galt School? She's like, oh, honey, you need to be six. And I was three at the time. And I'm like, so that's three years away. So I've, I've been on planet Earth for three years. I can't wait to be six. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's all going to be so much better then. Yeah. Yeah. And then moving forward, I think that <clears throat> you know, in the... In, intellectual crowds it can be very easy also to want to appease people and kind of want to appease your group and coming Mm. up with an alternative theory about something big can be frightening for a lot of intellectuals who have maybe held on to that need to appease others from an early age and they just 
kind of um, grown up and read more books and gotten into a certain position, but that fear definitely still exists. What was it like for you um, when you started talking about this alternative theory of, of prehistory and human sexuality? Oh, wow. So you're jumping 40 years ahead. Good. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't a problem because my... The reason these things are, are intimidating for people is that they've located their sense of self-worth uh, externally. So your sense of self-worth is based on how much money you're making or how much you know academic approval you're getting or whether you're going to get tenure or not or the respect of your colleagues and all those kinds of things. And because of the way my life uh, has been has happened, I was going to say it's been arranged, but it wasn't really arranged, but the way it's happened, um, I sort of kept my sense of self-worth on board and it's, it's self-generated. It doesn't come from outside. So I'm not a traditional academic, you know, I didn't go to a highly respected graduate school or anything. You know, I'm not an Ivy league trained this or that. Uh, I'm not affiliated with any institutions. I haven't had a job since the nineties, you know, I, I mean, I'm just like this weird kind of free floating free agent. And, um, so I think in a way that's what allowed me to be in a position to write that book, because if I had gone to a respected graduate school, um, you know, let's say I'd gone to UC Santa Cruz, which has uh, a very respected uh, program in evolutionary psychology, probably one of the best in the country or most respected. So I come up with this idea that, oh, wait a minute, um, human sexual evolution is not as depicted in the mainstream model. Well, I believe Tubi and Cosmides both taught at UC Santa Cruz, and they wrote a book called The Adapted Mind, which is like one of the you know, biblical tomes of evolutionary psychology. And a lot of ev evolutionary psychology is based on the idea that men and women have opposing reproductive agendas. And at the heart of our evolution as a species is this conflict between what women want and what men want. So as a graduate student, if I were going to challenge that, I, I don't know these people personally, but I imagine they would not be happy to have a doctoral student in their department working on a project that if it turns out to be successful is going to invalidate their entire career. That's not the way academia works. Academia is like, you're going to work in our department, you're going to do shit that buttresses the arguments that we've made, that supports our careers, right? That's the way academia is. So, and I'm not saying, uh, as I said, I don't know them personally, so maybe they're the kind of very, very rare academic who would be like, whoa, great, okay, let's see your challenge. You know, uh, Franz Duvall, a primatologist, is that kind of person. I, I've gotten to know him, and I've told the story elsewhere about how I sort of trashed him and, and sent him the manuscript, arguing with a lot of his points, and then he wrote back and was like, I don't know. You make some really good points. I can't wait to read your book. And I was like, really? Can I? Because I thought he was going to tell me right. I was wrong here, wrong there. Uh, and then it ended up, he, he told me I could use that sentence from the email as a blurb for the book. 
So here's this guy where I'm like, yeah, you're wrong about this, this, and this. He's never heard of me. And instead of being, you know, saying, fuck off, kid, he was like, hey, yeah, I don't know. You're raising some good points and good luck with the book. And wow. What a cool guy. Yeah. Very cool guy. But guys like that are one in a million, you know? You don't get to be a big shot in academia or anywhere else by welcoming that kind of thing. Right. So being an outsider, so um, being kind, an of, outsider, kind of allowed you yeah. to, to pursue that research. Right. And also like, you know, other people, you know, if you're not stopped by your institutional affiliations, if you have a conventional marriage, oh yeah, good luck, you know, writing about how monogamy doesn't come naturally to our species and, you know. It's kind of hard, you know, so I had a very unconventional marriage. I had no institutional affiliation. The, the wife is coming in like, Can, will you make me another sandwich? It's been a long night. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So I don't remember what your question well, was. Well, yeah, the question I was, I it was, it. I guess, how you came to to that theory now. I mean, well, like it's, oh, you seem like right. the type of person from what I've gathered that you get, you go down those rabbit holes and you get very deep into it. Was there a moment that you, that that rabbit hole began? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically I was in graduate school and I was already working on, uh, a project for my dissertation or my doctoral research, right. Which had to do with I was developing a personality profile assessment of doctors who were particularly good at dealing with existential despair. In other words, oncologists and intensive care doctors who have most of their patients die. What kind of personality can withstand that and not get depressed and burn out? And so my idea was to develop this as a screening tool that could be used by medical schools when uh, students were choosing their specialization, have the personality test um, so that like you want to be an oncologist, take this test. Uh, turns out you're a personality type that doesn't do well around a lot of death. Maybe you want to think about dermatology or, you know, and because doctor burnout's a huge problem and so I'd spent a lot of time in oncology wards in hospitals in Barcelona. I got uh, gigs at teaching English to oncologists so I could spend a lot of time with them at work and give them questionnaires and, you know, all this stuff. Um, anyway, so I was well into that. And uh, and so I was thinking about the whole thing with Clinton and the blowjob, you know, Monica Lewinsky thing. and And it just struck me as strange that, you know, the story is that men accrue power in order to get access to women. And <laughs> excuse me. And here's the like most powerful man in the world. He's got a casual sexual thing going with a woman. She's fine. He's not coercing her. She's into it. He's into it. No victim. Uh, but somehow it's this huge fucking deal that the whole world has to, you know, watch him get publicly humiliated his wife wasn't even that disturbed by it, as far as anyone could tell. It just didn't make sense to me. Like, if men have controlled all the levers of power, economic, military, uh, physical even, how do men design a world in which th that's so hostile to men, you know, in, in at least to men's sexuality, right? Um, so I was thinking about this because it seemed like something doesn't fit here in the story. 
And uh, around that time, a book came out called The Moral Animal by Robert Wright, which is uh, one of the first sort of comprehensive popular science books about evolutionary psychology. It's a very well-written book. I, I love it. Um, anyway, I read that book, and that book sort of lays out the evolutionary psychology argument. Men want to spread their seed far and wide. Women want a provider. You know, in prehistory, the man would go out and hunt, and he'd come home and only share his meat with his woman and his children. And so he had to know they were his children, so he's not wasting his energies on another man's genetic legacy, this whole sort of economic argument of male-female interaction. And it seemed to make perfect sense to me. And I started telling everybody about this amazing thing I read. And at the time, I was living with a woman who was a stripper in San Francisco. And I was working uh, for a company that was all women. It was called Women in Community Service. It was like 30 or 40 women and me and one other guy. Uh, (laughs) So I had a lot of smart outspoken, like hardcore feminist women around me. And so when I laid out this argument that I'd been reading, pretty much all of the women were like, yeah, that's a, you know, outdated Victorian male vision of the way things are. We don't, women don't fuck because we want something, you know? Yeah. You've created a world where a lot of times the, you know, these are strippers, like we use our sexuality to get money. Yeah. But you know, we'd rather not, you know, it's just, this is, this is one of the few options a young woman with a high school diploma has. Right. Um, so I was seeing it through their perspective and I thought, well, all right, they're saying this is bullshit, but you know, this, this is what the science says. So let me go back and look at the source material. So I went back and started looking at some of the, some of the material that Wright had used. And the first thing I found was that he talked a lot about chimpanzees, which are male-dominated, uh, kind of aggressive, oppressive. Uh, but he didn't talk about bonobos. And I started reading about bonobos. Like, what the fuck are bonobos, right? This is ninety mid-90s. Bonobos were very... And now everyone's talking about bonobos. But back then, nobody had ever... I'd never heard of them. Most people had never heard of them. And so I'm looking at bonobos and like, wait a minute. So bonobos are promiscuous female dominated to the extent that there's any domination at all they're actually very egalitarian no bonobo bonobo has ever been seen to uh murder or rape another bonobo what's up with them and they're equally relevant to human evolution because they're just as closely related to us as chimpanzees are but i've been reading about chimpanzees my whole life i never heard of bonobos what's going on so that made me think is there some kind of conspiracy here? Is there some kind of bullshit political agenda that's keeping the bonobos quiet while trumpeting these terrible chimps and their chimp warfare and the chimp aggression? And What's up with that? So that really lit a fire under my ass. Like, I'm, I, this is fishy as hell that I never heard of these bonobos before. Then I looked at the anthropological reports and... Lo and behold, there are all these societies in the Amazon and elsewhere who don't give a damn who your biological father is. It has no relevance whatsoever. And in fact, many societies think that a 
person can have four or five different fathers biologically because they think a fetus is composed of accumulated semen. So women are fucking all these different guys and then all those different guys say, yeah, I'm a father too. They don't even know one sex act can result in a baby. So how is this central thing, this sort of core principle of evolutionary psychology, which is that men, since time immemorial, have controlled women's sexuality so they can be assured of the paternity of the baby, that makes no sense when you look at the relevant information, when you look at anthropology and you look at the primatology. So that's what set me off, like, wait a minute, this isn't science, this is fucking propaganda. And so that was like pulling a thread on a tapestry and the more you pull the whole fucking thing just starts falling apart so i i had this moment this you know incredible you know moment as a graduate student where you're suddenly like wow i think i found something here that up upends a central tenet of this science that somehow no one else is talking about I don't know why, because I'm not the smartest guy on the planet and all this information's out there. I don't, I'm probably wrong because if I'm not wrong, how come this hasn't, how come this wasn't written 30 years ago? But I don't know. I'm going to keep pulling thread and see what I find. So as you kept pulling thread down that tapestry over the next number of years, what were those, what were the main threads in the tapestry that rose to the surface? Well, uh, basically, I learned that there was there's a sort of a minority view in anthropology that until you dig beneath the surface, you don't really hear about these people because the, you know, the media loves to celebrate conflict. And there's this self-aggrandizing man, the hunter, the primitive origins of violence. (coughs) <coughs> we love to see ourselves as this, you know, really badass primate. We're not. I mean, what's badass about us is how well we cooperate and form systems, social systems, which, you know, could also be our demise as we were talking about at dinner the, last night. But, um, you know, we're not, we don't have fangs. We don't run fast. We're not pretty. A chimpanzee is five times as strong as like the bat most. You know, Joe Rogan would have his ass kicked by a chimpanzee, right? It would take five Joe Rogans to to handle a chimpanzee on average. So, you know, all respect to Joe. All respect to Joe. Maybe Joe could do like four. <laughs> what if Joe got his back? <laughs> Rogan's on the ground. He's got his back. A <laughs> five, a four, a three. Chimp jujitsu. It's like the latest thing. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, chimps are far stronger than us. My point is uh, that there's this depiction of humans in prehistory that is inaccurate. Uh, this Hobbesian, what I call the Neo-Hobbesian vision of, of prehistory, that life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Every, that's one of the most famous phrases in the English language. Nasty, brutish, and short, right? It's wrong. That's how most women describe me, too. Yeah, <laughs> you're not so short. <laughs> you're not so short. Uh so the uh, yeah so so as far as like the, the, central tenets yeah egalitarianism is one that 
all our hunter-gatherer ancestors were fiercely egalitarian. So this idea that men have always dominated and controlled women, it's not there. There's no evidence for that. In fact, the evidence runs contrary to that, that female status in hunter-gatherer societies is on a par with men's. Um, so that's a big consideration, right? Because now suddenly you're not talking about men controlling, dominating women. You're talking about societies in which men and women have to work together and, and cooperate with one another. Um, so that's a big one. Uh, you know, another huge one is, and I, I get this, this is one of these widely believed false facts uh you know anytime i talk about how prehistory wasn't as bad as as it's made out to be first thing people say is yeah come on but you know they live to 35 turns out that's wrong that's total bullshit that's based upon uh, it's a false uh, fact, right? Like it was there, yeah. there was like a mudding of information well, where a number of yeah. people would die, right? You, well, part of it's a statistical thing. Yeah. So they'd find, so let's say archaeologists find, uh, you know, a group of skeletons and um, five of them are infants and, uh, you know, f- five of them are adults, okay? Um, you can't tell the age of an adult skeleton beyond about 35 because the way you measure the age at death is from dental eruption which is how far the wisdom teeth have come out of the jawbone and by 35 they're completely out so when archaeologists age uh, skeletal finding if they find the jawbone the highest is 35 plus. So they do it in five-year increments. It'll be 15 or 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 plus. But when journalists look at the scientific record who don't understand that archaeological nomenclature, they look and they say, oh, there are five infants, uh, you know, a couple of 15-year-olds and a 35, and they they never see a number higher than 35. So they assume 35 is as long as anyone lived. But it's not true. Right. That's just a, a misunderstanding between the archaeological community and and scientific journalists. You had this group of women that you were working with who were saying that uh, who were questioning uh, the model right. and that you, you were asking them and they were saying, well, that's that's bullshit. Right. Uh, you had the bonobo. So we had the bonobo. We had the female, the egalitarianism. Yep. We had the fact that food is shared in hunter-gatherer society. So the idea that a hunter is going to come home with a dead deer and say, sorry, guys, I'm just sharing this with my woman and my kids. Leave the rest of your tribal band to be hungry and resent you and fucking hate you. That's not the way it works. In fact, what happens is food is shared. And and one of the worst things you can do in a hunter-gatherer group is to hoard food and and not share things. Um, And then then anatomy, when did that piece of the tapestry fall? Because that's a big one. Yeah, it is a big one. Just the way that we are set up. Yeah, I mean, all the, the four major sources of information that I used in my dissertation and in Sex at Dawn were anthropology, primatology, anatomy, and contemporary psychosexual research. So, uh, and they're all in my dissertation, but then I, there was probably 
five or six years between when I wrote my dissertation, I finally got around to working on the book. And during those years, I, uh, you know, I felt like it's one thing to write your dissertation where three or four professors are going to read it. And, you know, that's all, that's your audience. It's another thing to publish a book where the whole world potentially could be reading it, including the experts in the fields that you're claiming are wrong. That's nerve wracking. Yeah, that was pretty nerve wracking. My, my fiction sounds kind of nice. <laughs> People can just say that wasn't a well set up <laughs> sentence. They're not going to tear down my whole argument. Yeah, exactly. Well, that see, that's the thing. And, and honestly, I, I hope this doesn't sound like some kind of false humility or whatever, but I, I'm not that smart. I mean, my friend Mike is way smarter than me. And, and, you know, I've got a lot of friends who like in terms of IQ and, you know, mental computational power, leave me in the dust. There's just no question about it. My wife speaks five languages, you know, I, I, or seven. No, she speaks seven. I can't even remember how many languages she speaks. <laughs> she stupid, speaks stupid, stupid. stupid. Oh, you did it again. Um, and I speak like, you know, some Spanish and passable English. Um, but you know, the, the thing I've got is what you've been sort of digging into here is I've got no affiliation. I've got intellectual freedom to think whatever the fuck I want to think. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, figure out, does it make sense or not? I don't give a shit right. who's offended or who, you know, feels uncomfortable or I, there's, I don't care. I'm on my own. It doesn't matter to me. So because we passed over the anatomy thing oh, yeah. quickly so and the anatomy, be, because people yeah. might not be familiar with your work, will you just hit those points sure. real quick? Sure. I mean, basically, you know, when you, the, the the anthropological stuff and the primatological arguments are both, I think they're very solid arguments, but they're both uh, circumstantial, essentially, right? You know, because, yeah, we have a lot in common with bonobos and chimps, but, you know, you might say, well, but, you know, what about gorillas? And, you know, so, you, so it gets into subtle distinctions of how long ago our DNA separated from theirs and blah, blah, blah. But with anatomy, what's really interesting is that uh, you can read a body uh, and the body tells you a lot about the environment in which that animal evolved. As It makes perfect sense, right? You can do it with plants. If we have a, you know, a cactus here on the table, we can look at that cactus and say, ah, that's from the desert. How do you know? Well, because it's you know, it doesn't have leaves, uh, so it's it's uh, got plenty of sunlight. It's not optimized for you know maximizing its exposure to sunlight. It's got the water, a lot of water content in it. It's got roots that suck up water really quickly. Well, that tells you it's a very brief rainy season or you know brief rains. So you can look at the body of any organism and learn it's a reflection of the environment that created that organism and. Uh, so you look at humans and, and other primates and you can, or, you know, mammals in general, their reproductive tract tells you, or reproductive anatomy tells you a lot about the sexual behavior of, in which they evolved, right? The sort of sexual context in which they evolved. So for example, uh, something as simple as the difference in size between males and females, tells you something where in in groups that um are mammals that uh are alpha male um 
troops like um, gorillas, what you find are that the males are selected for by size. So the biggest, strongest male gets rid of the other males, pushes them out, and then he takes the females and he female he um, you know mates with those females, and so those genes for big aggressive male are going to be passed on to the progeny of those females, um, and so what you get are males that are about twice the size of females. So you see this in gorillas, you see this in sea lions, you see this in lots of harem-based mating systems, right? Um, in mating systems that are purely monogamous, what you find is that males and females are indistinguishable. They're the same size, same coloration, very, very hard to tell the male from the female. In mammals or primates in particular that are promiscuous, multi-male, multi-female mating, the males tend to be about 15 to 20% bigger than the females. So lo and behold, what do we find? Humans, chimps, bonobos, all 15 to 20% bigger males, heavier males than females. Uh, not like gorillas. And, and so you hear these arguments, you know, the alpha male of the humans. Now that's bullshit. There's not like alpha male. Well, there's no gorilla equivalent of human societies. If there were... We'd all be like Andre the Giant. Yeah, we'd be twice... And, you know, it'd be like Shaq and his wife. You know, that would be a <laughs> typical couple, you know. Uh, so, okay, that's one. Another, another, and, and none of these individually would be enough. So in order to really get the power of this argument, you know, read the book, read the book, because it, it's just overwhelming when you add them all up. But also you have things like uh, external testicles, right? Gorillas who fight uh, and have all that reproductive pressure is on the male to be big and strong. They've got these huge muscles, right? But a gorilla's dick is the size of your pinky and, you know, fully erect. Uh, a gorilla's testicles are like kidney beans and they're like up inside his abdomen. He has no external scrotum hanging out. Whereas chimpanzees and bonobos, who are both promiscuous, multi-male, multi-female breeders, their testicles are like chicken eggs. They're massive. And they're outside the body. Why are they outside the body? To keep the sperm cells a little cooler than body temperature. Why is that important? Because it means you can store sperm cells so you can have multiple ejaculates in rapid succession with all these like reserved sperm cells that are ready to go. Well, that's obviously really important, uh, important enough to store them outside the body in a very vulnerable spot, right? So... You know, there are, there are a number of them. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, I, female I, I, orgasm, you know, female, why women make more noise when they have sex than men do. You know, it's like it's called female copulatory vocalization. Yeah. So there are many, yeah. many things. Yeah. yeah. Happen. You've gone through this a million times, too. Yeah. So I don't want to yeah. spend the rest of the time. <laughs> Watch the TED talk. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because so many people are uncomfortable with the idea of non-monogamy, but I think a lot of people feel um, they are questioning that premise. Like, wait, is this really the way to go? But it's very difficult to have those conversations. What are questions that you would ask at a dinner table if you wanted to bring up these kinds of uh, this kind of conversation? Oh or what? I don't. I'm, I don't want to bring up this kind of conversation. Yeah, I've well, ruined for, but, so many dinner parties. But, but for man. someone who who does, what do you think is um, 
an effective way to what are question effective questions for people to bring up so that the the dinner table doesn't just implode what do you mean to to talk to about to talk about the idea of non-monogamy and questioning the premise uh of it what are what are points of entry that you've found to be helpful well you know first of all when i talk about this stuff uh, i try to always include uh the fact that by saying something is not part of our species sort of uh, default behavior doesn't at all mean that there's anything wrong with it, right? So there are lots of things that we do that our hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't do that aren't necessarily destructive or unhealthy or whatever. So I equate monogamy with vegetarianism. And, you know, I've said this before that, you know, you can choose to be a vegetarian, but you can't choose to be an herbivore, right? So... That's the way I think about it is like, and I think people get confused by that because they've chosen to be monogamous. They therefore think it should be easy and natural and effortless and it won't be. And so the, the entry I try to make is like, look, you do what you want with your life and I'm not making any value judgment one way or the other my parents are totally monogamous they've been married 57 years or something totally happy you know I would never tell anyone that that's a bad way to live your life in fact the stability and beauty of their marriage gave me the freedom to you know be the crazy fuck up I am you know so I you know I I acknowledge that and, and love it but um the point is you're married, you love your partner, and you still feel attracted to other people. I think a lot of people are feeling, carrying around a lot of shame over that. And what I try to, my main message is, there's nothing to be ashamed of there. That's, you're a homo sapien. That's totally normal. That's par for the course. Now, I and I think that enables people to sort of forgive themselves and hopefully forgive the partner as well. Like, oh, your husband looks at porn sometime. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he's not attracted to you. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with your marriage. It just means he's a dude. He's a he's a human being, right? And you last night had an orgasm while you were dreaming about your tennis instructor. Hey, nothing to worry about. So it doesn't mean you should leave your husband, right? Uh and in fact, if you could share these things within your relationship, that would make your relationship much better because you're being more authentic with each other. So I think the problem, a lot of relationships, a lot of couples don't share these things with each other because they think that the fact that there's attraction for other people means there's something wrong and they don't want to share this idea that, hey, maybe there's something wrong here. You know, they, they don't want to get into that because they love the other person. And so there's this weird conundrum that we're stuck in. So I think once you realize like, oh, wait a minute, I can be attracted to other people without that reflecting badly on my relationship or myself. Oh, fuck. What a relief. You know, so that's that's how I try to if I can frame the conversation that way, it's not going to ruin the dinner party. Right. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Tends to be less threatening. Yeah. I found that, I mean, with a lot of these subjects that, that I tend to go into, it's, it's how you enter it. That means everything to people. Yeah. I mean, whether we're talking about religion or politics yeah. or sexuality, there, it takes skill and yeah. in communication to be able to pierce the veil 
Um, and I'm happy that you're, you've done the work to be able to frame it up in different ways. Mm. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Dinner parties can be awkward when I'm around. Dinner, tar- dinner parties tend to just be awkward as a, as a thing like dinner parties and bars also <laughs> bars are the most awkward social interactions. I don't know why people go to yeah. pick up women at bars. Uh, the worst it's yeah. I often think that if you were designing like a place for people to meet each other, what could be worse than like a nightclub? Hey, what's your name? Yeah. I'm Kevin. Yeah. You want to get drunk enough so that we can feel comfortable enough to talk to each other and then have sex and not remember it? Yeah. Scream in each other's ears, spit flying all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. You and I, I think, both uh, found found a lot of enjoyment in traveling and just being in the outdoors. Yeah. This kind of like like moments of lack of people. Yeah. Was that an early on thing for you that when you decided that you wanted to be a, a traveler for your whole life? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I had, I had a moment, you know, we were talking you were talking earlier about that, uh, dry spell, you know, where you're kind of coming out of the mystery of childhood and you're trying to figure out how to deal with the practicalities of life. And, um, when I was in college, my first year of college, Halloween night, uh, a woman that I was hanging out with gave me some mushrooms. It's the first time I had any hallucinogenic experience. And that experience for me was so familiar. So like, oh, oh, this, I remember this. Back to the note. Yeah. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely back to like, oh yeah. Like I had spent the previous five or six years trying to wrap my head around reality, consensus reality. And I was forgetting, I was losing touch with that sort of mystical realm. And so when I had the mushrooms, I was like, oh, I know this place. This is reality. You know, this (laughs) this is what's real. How would you describe that reality? Um, it's a, it's a realm in which, you know, I think the beauty of it is that it's a realm dominated by doubt in a sense. And, and what I mean by that is consensus reality is like a dictatorship. It's like, uh, it's like, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, Old Testament. Yeah, this is the way things are. Don't question And it. that's it. There's one God. One God, you know? That's me. Yeah. Whereas that realm is like, whoa, there are a lot. There's a lot going on. There's so much. If I choose to look into this, I'm going to see worlds there. You know, the whole William Blake thing, eternity and instant. And, uh, you know, what did he say? If we could cleanse the the windows or something uh, the doors of perception open wide the doors of perception you see eternity in an hour and the world in a grain of sand right um so i think that's the beauty of that that it's not that it's a place it's not that it's a world or a way of seeing things it's an acknowledgement of the multiplicity of worlds and the multiplicity of realities and so it's a much more accepting open-hearted um 
you know, acknowledgement of, of mystery and all that we don't know, as opposed to fixation on the few things that we do know. You know? Right. I think that there's a really healthy balance between being intellectually rigorous and um, trying to be correct in your statements as best as possible, but not hanging on to that kind of intellectual insecurity right. that I see a lot of people do, but very smart people yeah. just deathly afraid of being wrong. Right. Um, but then on the other side of it, you know, just being kind of like a, a woo woo hippie where it's like, well, you know, we just don't really know anything. Like, yeah. you, know, you can believe the world's flat. I believe it's round yeah. and, you know, well, yeah. that's okay. It's just right? another form of ignorance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there is that healthy balance and that tightrope, the, the duality to be able to walk. Yeah. I, I was agree. having a conversation with, with Jim Fadiman when he was on my, my podcast and he does a lot of work around um, psychedelics and microdosing. Another and he said that guest I'll soon be poaching. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm happy. If, I'm excited for you to have that conversation. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. But he said something to me around um, his first experience with um, one of his first experiences with psychedelics. And he was going to. Um, to Harvard at the time, he you know, wore the the smart man's jacket to try and fool everyone of how you know, many books he had read. And he always said, you know, he was one of the guys who pretended to have read a lot more than he actually did, and he felt so um, so deeply ingrained in that identity of being a smart person. Mm-hmm. And I think that going back to what you were talking about at, at the beginning of of this episode around not having your self-worth be external, not having your self-worth be based on how many books you've read or, or all these, these factoids that you know. And, um, I, I do think that psychedelics can be very helpful. Mm. Um, and they've been very helpful for me kind of, as I'm just kind of like getting into this world and, you know, interacting with, with smart people like you, like there are moments of like, Oh, like, do I know that person? And just being okay with saying, Hey, I don't know what that word means. Right. Yeah. Well, and and the sort of anti-intuitive, counterintuitive thing is when someone has the self-awareness and and, uh, self-respect to say, hey, what is that word? That is a sign of intelligence, you know? Because the thing is, you know, it's the old adage, you don't know what you don't know, right? And that's something young people trip up on a lot in trying to act like they know things they don't know. But the problem is that older people often, they, they see through it, you know, right. uh, you can't fake a lot of that shit. So, so as you know, now I'm a spokesman for the older generation, I guess, suddenly, I don't know when the fuck that happened, but you know, as that, uh, you know, I'm acknowledging now, I'm, I'm seeing now from my, you know, my perch here above 55 years that like a lot of shit I thought I was getting away with is just ridiculous. And I can even remember conversations where people would sort of comfort me or talk to me in a way that they weren't really calling me out on my bullshit, but that they were very subtly acknowledging that they saw it and so I wouldn't realize they'd seen it until I grew to a point where I was like oh that's what he meant you know he knew I was lying but he didn't want to call me a liar because he was trying to help me 
You know, they're, it's amazing the things you remember. Right. It's like one of those Pixar movies that's enjoyable for the kids and the adults too, because they're the two different different jokes. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. So you, you asked earlier something, what's the question? I I think before we took a piss, there was something about, oh, travel. Travel. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So what happened with me, so I started talking about uh, mushrooms, right? So the, the whole mushroom thing happened and then. Uh, I found, uh, a way I, you know, your brother, it turns out did something similar, like found a loophole in the student handbook where I could graduate on time, but skip a year. And, um, so I skipped my junior year of college and my parents said, well, we'll still give you the money that you were using to live in town. Um, but I, I wanted to go to Alaska cause I wanted to see the last frontier. You know, I wanted to see a frontier and what the world was like where there weren't people and all that. So I ended up, had you just, had you just read into the wild? No, into the wild wasn't written oh, yet. I guess not. No, yeah. I, I did this trip a few years before Chris McCandless. So it was interesting to read that book because it was very similar. I hitchhiked across the country. I had all these amazing experiences. And see, the thing is, so I was at this small college because, you know, I probably maybe could have gotten into an Ivy League school. But the time when I was doing the SATs and my applications and all that was around the time this woman was you know, destroying my life. So <laughs> that was the sunglasses at sunglasses, night. Like, I couldn't <laughs> see the application. That's the, that's, that, that'll definitely be the chapter. If you do write the, the memoir, sunglasses at night, Jack fucking Nicholson, man, with tear, with a tear coming out from the bottom of the sunglasses. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. My buddy Mike loves to remind me of some of my, uh, some of my moments. I just picture you laying back on a bed with sunglasses on listening to dust in the wind. (laughs) You got the right era. Sure. Sticks, a little Kansas. Yeah. Uh, Oh, bad company. So you're traveling and you you figured out a a glitch in the matrix to be able to graduate and travel. So so basically what happened, so I, I went to this small college instead of an Ivy League college school right so I go to the small college and like I was standout student I won the best scholar award I won this award I won that award so I was like Mr. Fucking Cool and uh, I was and I really love literature and and I specialized in the transcendentalists like Melville Whitman uh, Thoreau Emerson who are writing a lot about nature and and they're sort of like Buddhists they're sort of like American Buddhists without really knowing what Buddhism was at the time but you know finding a unity with nature and the beauty of nature which obviously fit in really well with the, the hallucinogens that I was doing um, and uh, so I was like okay I'm gonna go to Oxford because I had a professor who was a big Oxford guy and he was going to get me into Oxford. I'm going to go to Oxford. I'm going to get a PhD. And by the time I'm 27, I'm going to be teaching uh, literature at some Princeton or someplace. And I'm going to fucking kick ass and I'll have tenure by the time I'm 35 and I'll write all these scholarly papers. And that's my, that's me. That's where I'm going. Right. But I'm going to take my junior year. I'm going to go to Alaska, have this one last adventure, sort of like like a bachelor party, like I'm going to go crazy and then I'm going to get married and like, that'll be it. Right. So I did this, went to Alaska and hitchhiked from New York and man, I met all these wild people and like really good people 
who took me to their house and fed me and trusted me and you know older you know guys who were like what do you, you know just 19 year old guy out here hitchhiking across Canada and you know let me give you some food and like their wives would take care of me and you, you need to be careful and they'd put stuff money in my pocket and all this beautiful stuff yeah it's a really interesting human experience when you are traveling and you see that kind of you feel yeah. that kind of love that was something yeah. that shifted for me yeah um, when I started traveling now when I see people coming through Santa Cruz Oh, we got an extra room. Come stay. Yeah. Stay as long as yeah. you want. It's one of the best feelings in yeah. the world to be able to re- return that. Yeah, because you, you feel like you're drawing on an account on a bank and like, and it's, you know, you haven't put anything into it, you yeah. know, and and being vulnerable, you know, like because we spend so much of our lives trying not to be vulnerable and to be well protected and all that. But you're standing next to a highway with your thumb out in the middle of fucking Manitoba you're as vulnerable as shit, man. And I, I, I'm not recommending this to anyone, by the way. You know, I, it worked out okay for me, but phew, man, that's real vulnerability and got into some hairy situations. But um, anyway, the point is I met all these amazing people. I felt that love that you describe, And I looked back on my friends at the university, you know, these professors I was hanging out with who were good people and really smart and very well educated and all that. But, you know, I imagined if so, so here I am and I had like all these books in my backpack and I was, you know, Mr. Pedantic, you know, intellectual asshole. Um, these people listened to me and accepted me and respected me and took care of me, even though there was like an implicit superiority in my attitude at the beginning anyway. And I look back and I thought, okay, what would happen if this guy who just fed me and put me in his daughter's bed and, you know, like gave me a place to, the daughter wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome. Yeah. Like, thanks, man. <laughs> um, you know, what would happen if this guy went to my world and needed help. And I realized nobody would help him. They'd laugh at him. This uneducated hick, you know, doesn't even know who Emerson is, doesn't know the first thing about, you know, critical theory or whatever the fuck it was that they're into. And so there was this lack of reciprocity. And I look back on myself and my and, and the direction I was going. And, you know, this didn't happen immediately, but in the course of that summer... And I was like, man, I'm on track to be an asshole. And I don't really want to do that. I don't want to be like my friends now that I see them from this distance. I'd rather be like these guys. Like this guy built his own fucking house. He's got these dogs that he loves and he they're really well like behaved. And, and he's got these kids who love him and his wife is really cool. And he's got a really good relationship. And like his life works. I look back at my friends in college and they're angry, bitter, unhappy, don't know how to change a fucking light bulb, totally vulnerable. You know, like, well, okay, they're smart. They have a PhD from Yale, but what else do they have? Yeah, they're kind of leaning on a lot of that to ignore some other aspects of life. And then and then you look at the literature I thought I was going to be teaching, you know, Joseph Conrad, Herman Melville. It's all about (laughs) excuse me. It's all about travel. It's all about movement. It's all about adventure. So I'm never going to have a fucking adventure, but I'm going to like talk about it the rest of my life. Ah, That's bullshit. So. I decided in Alaska, I remember where I was, like exactly where I was when I said, okay. Where were you? Kenai. 
Uh, I was on the bluff overlooking Cook Inlet. Uh, I was working at this uh, salmon cannery called Kenai Packers. And uh, there's this big bluff up there and we had tents. We had like a tent city up there and uh, you go down and work 18 hours a day and then go sleep in your tent. Um, Yeah, I was sitting up there and I was looking out across Cook Inlet. There's this snow covered volcano. I forget what it's called right now, but it's an active volcano. So there's like smoke coming out and it's beautiful and there are whales and bald eagles and it's just fucking amazing. And and I was just sort of looking ahead to my life and I was like, and, and also what's cool about looking across Cook Inlet is the, all the roads end at Cook Inlet. There's nothing on the other side. There are a couple villages in the Bristol Bay area, but basically from there to Siberia is just empty. There's no, there are no roads, you know, you have to fly to get over there. Um, so that was the edge. I was literally sitting on the edge, you know, looking out. And, and I remember thinking like, uh, I can't, this is stupid. I I can't go to graduate school. I I don't know what the fuck I'm doing in life. I can't make these decisions. So I decided until I'm 30, I'm not going to make a commitment to anything, not to a woman, not to a career, not to a graduate school or a medical school or anything from now. And I think I was probably 20 or 21 then, uh, from now till I'm 30, I'm just going to float around the world, have adventures, meet who I happen to meet, do whatever I do to make money and see the world from as many different angles as I can. And then no earlier than 30, I'll have enough perspective on things and I will have seen the world from enough angles that I'll be able to make an intelligent decision about what I want to do with this life. Do you ever write down any of those reflections? Yeah, I kept journals. Yeah. And and then will you look back at those? Yeah, I've I've got them actually now. I, I took them out of storage recently. I've I've looked at them recently for the first time in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I lost a couple of them. I got robbed. I lost one that was two and a half years, which sucked. But um yeah, yeah, there's it's funny to look at the way I wrote too. <laughs> like especially that time in Alaska, it I wrote a lot like uh D.H. Lawrence, who I was reading a lot then. The writing style reflects what I was reading. What kind of an author was he? D.H. Lawrence. I'm not familiar with D.H. Lawrence. God, you ignorant (laughs) fuck. Stupid, stupid, (laughs) stupid. (laughs) D.H. Lawrence was really interesting. Um, You know, and I I should also add that, like, the way I dealt with books was I would get into an author and, like, read everything by that author. So I'd be, you know, D.H. Lawrence for a year, Joseph Conrad for a year or two, and Melville, you know. So I've, the books, the authors I've I've been obsessed with, I've read, like, most or all of their work. Um, So I'd really get into that style, and then you'd see the style reflected in the way I was writing, because the voice was so ingrained. Yeah. D.H. Lawrence was interesting. He wrote, he's most famous for a book called Lady Chatterley's Lover, uh, which was banned and went to the Supreme Court. And the finally it it was deemed to be pornographic, but it was literature. So it like really pushed the limit of what could, what's acceptable as literature. And it was essentially uh, a story about, a wealthy man who has a beautiful wife 
uh, much younger than him. And I think he's disabled in some way. He has an accident or a disease or something. And he can't, basically can't fuck her. And then he's got this gardener and she's in love with the, she's like wants to fuck the gardener. And I think like the husband's okay with it. And so it's this very sort of subversive, like, oh my God, how could you? And, and it's also, his writing's very sensual. There's a lot of, you know, celebration of passion and lust and, you know, beauty. And it's very juicy and, uh. Yeah, so I was into that. There's and, a, and what would you say that you've done to be able to keep your life light and travel? A lot of people who are listening right now are enthusiastic travelers, and I think that there's this kind of fear as you get older that your your life will just solidify, and yeah. the amount of things that you that you acquire will will bog you down. Were there? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that, well, that must be one of them. That's is that the you've, answer. You've yeah, kept it light. What, how do you do that like, pragmatically to make sure that you can at, uh, at any time or at least most times continue to travel? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just what you said. Like, it's about how much stuff you accumulate and then, you know, how much you have to pay for places to keep the stuff. Uh, so I've always practiced, um, you know, it, it's funny to see like sort of things being branded and marketed and promulgated that I've just always done like minimalism, you know, like I had the minimalists on my podcast and they've got a documentary. That was a great show by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. They're cool guys. It was, yeah. it was fun doing that. Um, but you know, I've, I've been doing that forever or, you know, Tim Ferriss, I think you and I talked maybe on my podcast about when I read the four hour work week, a lot of the things he talked about there, like, yeah, I've been doing that forever. Like you go to the U S you earn dollars. Then you take those dollars, you go to India or Indonesia where, you know, $5,000 is a lot of money, spend it there. You don't, you know, you don't yeah. spend it in the U.S. So I've been doing that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I, I have to say two things. One, I grew up traveling a lot. I'm used to leaving my friends. I'm used to making new friends. I'm used to my world being me, not my social, whatever my social thing happens to be. So it's not a big deal for me to just go, eh, I want to go live in Berlin and like, okay, do you know anyone there? No. Uh, aren't you going to miss your friends? Yeah. But I want to live in Berlin. So I'll go live in Berlin. Yeah. I could do that tomorrow. I could, you know, you've seen my place. I could pack that shit up and go to Berlin. Right. Um, so that's, one thing, just being used to it, that I have to acknowledge, it's not that hard for me because I don't have a home. A lot of people when I was traveling, they're like, don't you miss home? Like, well, where's home, man? I don't have a home. You know, my parents live in a house. I, you know, they moved there when I was in my 30s. You know, like, I don't know. I didn't grow up there. Um, and then the other thing is I don't have a family. I don't have kids. And so... I think that's a big issue and I don't really know what to say to people who do have kids because, you know, I, some people say, well, you can travel with kids. You can, I guess, but it's hard and it's expensive. It sucks a lot of times. Too. And it'll suck for the kids too. You know, I've met some kids when I was like in India, some Western kids whose parents were raising them on the beach in Goa and, they seem like good kids, yeah. but I don't know when they get to be 15, 16, it becomes really important to have that sort of social thing. Right. Right. You know, 
Yeah, well, so, it seems like a podcast is a perfect medium for you to be able to continue this lifestyle and uh, and interact with people, you know, and but yeah. not have it be, you know, it's not like a film. I mean, we're videoing this now, but it's not um, like having a film crew, you know, right. like you can just do that. It seems like it's something that slipped so easily into your life. Yeah, yeah. The technology is sort of uh, appropriate is, for that. Is that the way that it felt? Like I'm guessing that you went on a few podcasts and you're like, oh, this is fun. And then had the idea to start your own. Did it just kind of sl- no. slip in like Jessica Rabbit wears a red no, dress? No, no. I got dragged into it kicking and screaming. Do tell. Uh, I did Duncan Trussell's podcast. It was the first podcast that I ever ever done first I'd never heard of a podcast he reached out to me I was living in Spain and uh you know I I guess my parents and my sister live in LA so I I went to LA occasionally to visit and uh yeah he sent me an email and he was like hey man love your book that's how Duncan talks for those of you who don't know who he is uh and uh, so he had read the book and he wrote to me and was just like, hey, you know, love to have you on my podcast. I'm a comedian. And I live in L.A. So it turns out a month later, I was on my way to L.A. to see my family and I was doing a lot of media. You know, I, I had done lots of TV and radio and all that. And I wasn't really sure what a podcast was, but I liked the idea of meeting a professional comedian. I'd never met a comedian so I thought, yeah, I'll meet this guy. And I think I probably saw something on YouTube and I thought he was funny. Um, so I went to his house and it was like this. There's a little table and he had a couple of mics and he's like, you want to get high? I'm like, oh, no, I don't think so. Like, you want some mushrooms? No, I'm good. Buddy. Pre-podcast mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think we might have had a beer or something. And uh, maybe we smoked a bowl. I don't remember. But so we just had this conversation like you and I are having. And then he was like, okay, that's it. And he pushed the button. And he's like, let's go get some beers. And like, I was like, that's it? Like that Really? That's it? He's like, yeah, man, that was great. It was really good. Like, really? That's... So then he was, when we were in this bar, he's like, man, you know, you should do a podcast. I was like, really? What are you talking about? Like, no, my life is already so complicated. Because my life was so simple for so long. Like, I... You know, I lived on very little money. I didn't exist. I wasn't on anyone's radar. I got four emails a day. You know, two were from my mother. I I was like, you know, super tranquilo. And then the book came out and suddenly, and I'm not complaining, but my life got much more complicated. Yeah. I mean, I had lawyers and agents and, you know, people asking me for the TV rights and, you know, do these interviews and, you know, holy shit, what, really? Um, so then he's like, you should do something else. And I'm like, come on, man, I don't need something else. And also, I don't know about audio and mics and sound levels and, you know, yeah. And he was like, no, no, I got this guy. He's great. Um, Justin, I think his name was. Um, Justin will hook you up. And so... I, you know, he emails Justin and Justin's like, okay, here's what you need to get. You need the zoom. You need these mics. You need these cables. You need this mic stand. Like that's it. And you know, you just record a conversation. You send me the file. I'll do the, like whatever the engineering that they do, whatever. And, uh, upload it. And so I was, it was a network that Duncan was part of. And so I sort of started out on that network. Um, can't remember what it was called. But anyway, so they made it really easy, you know, and 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 Duncan's point was, you know, hey, you meet a lot of interesting people, you know, your life's interesting. You should just record the conversations. And so I thought, well, I'll try. And the thing that I liked, Duncan told me 
uh, I, I won't like divulge his personal information, but this was like five years ago. He told me how much money he was making on the podcast. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough for me to live, you know, a couple grand, three grand, whatever it was. And I thought, yeah, if I can make a few grand a month talking with people, which I like doing, eh, you know, even if it takes me a while to get there, you know, I could do that. And in the meantime, it's not hard. It's enjoyable. So anyway, that's how I got into it. And it just took off largely thanks to Duncan and Joe and, you know, the fact that I was spending a lot of time. I wasn't living in L.A. yet, but I was visiting a lot. And so every time I went down, you know, Joe would invite me on or Joe and Duncan and I did the series, the three of us together. So that, you know, blew up my audience pretty quickly. Was there a moment that it all of a sudden you realized, whoa, this could be a a big part of my life? Um, Or was it just natural progression? It was sort of a gradual progression. I mean, it got, as far as audience numbers, it sort of, and just time spent and like all of a sudden, you know, maybe get I mean, you get emails now every single day from people who want life advice from you, people who want to be on your podcast. It's, like it's become a big part of your life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there a moment that that's happened that you realized like, oh, this could actually work? Well, a big moment was when I decided to give up advertising because I was, you know, I had some of these sort of typical advertisers that a lot of podcasts have. You know, your Squarespace and your, I don't know, I forget what the other ones were. Um, and, you know, I was making some scratch from that. And uh, and then a woman was working with me trying to line up, lining up more advertisers. And she was like, she was great. She's super energetic. And she was like, you know, hooking me up with all the, like this underwear company and these guys who make these like radio speakers for camping. They're like, you know, shockproof, waterproof, amazing this and amazing that and wine of the month club. And she was just like, and, and I, I sort of looked at this and I was like, you know, I don't want to do this. I, I wine of the fucking month club. No, no. Like, thank you. Standing out on the bluff <laughs> looking. <laughs> yeah. Another moment. At the end of the world. <laughs> another keen eye moment. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I just, cause a lot of what I'm, you know, whatever value I bring to people on the podcast, I think, a lot of it is as an example of how to live in a way that isn't about material and, you know, getting ahead and making more and spending more. It's living more. And so to talk about that and then turn and go, and these speakers are going to make your trip so much better. Fuck that, you know? So I just said, okay, you know what? I, I don't want to keep doing this this way. So I don't remember, it was two and a half, three years ago probably, where I just said to my audience, like, look, guys, uh, I can't do this bullshit with the advertising. I'm going to cut all advertising. Um, if you want to send me money, please do, and I'll keep doing this. If if there's not enough money coming in, I won't. You know, hard feelings, but, you know, this, we got to yeah. do a new way. And the response was great. I ended up, you know, they people sent me money. It amazes me that people will, you know, throw, throw 50 bucks down on PayPal for something they can have for free. It's a good feeling. It's, it's amazing. It's, one of, it's yeah. similar to like being taken in by family traveling. Good point. Never yeah. thought of that. It is. It's very much that same kind of relationship. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that's a good place to end it, but people can check out your podcast, Tangentially Speaking. Yeah. Where can they get in touch with you? At, at my website, chrisryanphd.com, uh, Tangentially Speaking. I'm on Instagram, that Chris Ryan. Twitter, that Chris Ryan. Used to be Chris Ryan PhD, but then Duncan Trussell called himself Duncan Trussell PhD. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so many people were giving me shit for that PhD. I won't, I won't bore you with the story, but uh, I had a social media guy and he was like, Hey, Chris Ryan PhD isn't taken. You should do that. And I was like, okay guy, whatever. And then it was like everywhere. And then people were like, Oh, Mr. Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right on Dr. So, Ryan. Thank well, you for coming on the is. show. There it is. Really My appreciate pleasure. you taking the time. My pleasure, man. Hey, before you take off, please take two minutes and give this show a rating on iTunes. For anything and everything else, you can get over to my website, kyle.surf. I love hearing from you. And with that, I need music. If any of you know musicians who want to have their tunes played at the end of this show, have them get in touch with me. I will link to their band page and give them credit. With that, I leave you with his song by Leo James, a.k.a. Bottom Feeder. He is the talented musician who made the intro song for this podcast and this tune is called lovers can be friends see you soon that was much too loud you must be more gentle try again again